poetry. Other than cursing, poetry allows us to say the most with the fewest words. From Punk's New and Selected Poems by John Keane, published by The Song Cave. Poetry. Other than cursing, poetry allows us to say the most with the fewest words. First poem in John Keane's Punk's New and Selected Poems, published by The Song Cave. That is awesome. That is awesome. <laughs> no, I love it. It's so goofy, but it's just a nice little nugget of someone's personal poetic theory. That is so satisfying. Other than cursing, poetry allows us to say the most with the fewest words. That just... Uh, it just resonates it does. so much. It does. <laughs> and I never think about the relationship between poetry and cursing. Yes. <laughs> but I do like that idea that when you, if you're really putting your heart into it when you curse, you kind of enunciate the words a little differently. Um, <laughs> they come through with a little more heat. And that's exactly what you do when you read poetry. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> mm -hmm. It is. Satisfying is the perfect word for that. Right. The power and succinctness of language, and also, also when you curse, you haven't mentally cogitated something. It's like a spirit comes to you and it just comes out. Yeah. You know, that's so true. You know, it's just like I'm not going to do it, but yeah. you know, it just—it's not that you think, oh, I'm going to say this curse. No, it just comes out. Just like maybe that's what poetry does. It, it comes out. There's yes. a muse for cursing and a muse <laughs> for poetry. And they're both <laughs> succinct and they're both powerful. A muse for cursing. That is gorgeous. I, <laughs> One of my favorite things about poetry and cursing is the crafting and the creativity of just a really good, if you're like really on one, and yes. you just got to get super creative to destroy whatever's yeah. in front of you. That's that's an art. Yes. It's something that I've noticed in older people. It's like the older you get, the better at it you are. And Dustin would always talk about his grandmother and how her, when he was a little kid and she would curse around him, his mind would just be blown by her curse combinations. Yes. Because they didn't make any sense and he'd never heard them before. And I love that idea of just being overcome by the Holy Spirit of cursing and just the creativity just flows, you know? Yeah, I remember uh, it, that reminds me of, of being a teenager and, you know, my first my first attempts at cursing. And uh, it, it, it came across as very amateur. The rhythm wasn't there, the intent, the intonation. Yeah. You know, it takes practice. Uh, it becomes, it's an art. It's, it's an, an art. art. And you become seasoned. The older you get, the more you curse. <laughs> yes, yes. But we're not cursing. We're, we're not. We're going to read poetry. We're going to do the other succinct thing. Well, thank you, Inar, for that amuse-bouche. Yes, that was wonderful. That was wonderful. My pleasure. I guess we should say happy National Poetry Month. Yes, yes, April. Happy National Poetry yeah. Month, though... It's Poetry Month every every month at the yes. House Publications Office. And so we just love the, the spotlight and the opportunity to indulge. Yeah, it gives a, a, a special feeling that this is our time of poetry. It's something we can really focus on. And it's something special 
special er specialer <laughs> special er indeed suddenly everyone's paying attention to poetry yes get on instagram everyone's posting a poem and it's fun to see um i'm really excited that we're all gathered here again this is one of my favorite episode formats just between the three of us and anyone who happens to listen to this episode <laughs> i love when the three of us just get together and share some poems that we've really been digging lately. I mean, that's the whole idea behind this episode. Mm -hmm. uh, yes, we're celebrating National Poetry Month, but we're also just catching up with each other and seeing what we've been reading lately. And it's very fun for me. Yes. Joe, will you kick us off? Yeah, well, Poetry Month has given me a thought and the chance to kind of dig back into poetry I hadn't looked at for a long time. And I've picked a poem that... Uh, I have loved since I started reading poetry, which wasn't early in my life, but it's one of the poems that brought me into poetry and yeah. one of the poets who brought me into poetry, and that's W.B. Yeats. And just the sound of the language, you know, you don't pick up a poem for 10 years and it's like brand new to you again, and it's just wonderful, wonderful, so... I brought a Yeats poem to share with you two. I'm going to read one of Yeats' more famous poems. You know, there's a lot of his poems are really, really famous. But uh, this is from the late 1920s. It's Sailing to Byzantium. Sailing to Byzantium. That is no country for old men. The young in one another's arms, birds in the trees, those dying generations at their song, the salmon falls, the mackerel crowded seas, fish, flesh, or fowl, commend all summer long whatever is begotten, born, and dies. Caught in the sensual music, all neglect monuments of unaging intellect. An aged man is but a paltry thing, a tattered coat upon a stick, unless soul clap its hands and sing, and louder sing for every tatter in its mortal dress. Nor is there a singing school but studying monuments of its own magnificence. And therefore I have sailed the seas and come to the holy city of Byzantium. O sages, standing in God's holy fire, as in a gold mosaic of a wall. Come from the holy fire, pern in a gyre, and be the singing masters of my soul. Consume my heart away, sick with desire, and fastened to a dying animal. It knows not what it is, and gather me into the artifice of eternity. Once out of nature, I shall never take my bodily form from any natural thing, but such a form as Grecian goldsmiths make of hammered gold and gold enameling to keep a drowsy emperor awake, or set upon a golden bough to sing to lords and ladies of Byzantium of what is past or passing or to come. Wow. Yeah, I just 
I just get the shivers when I read that poem. And uh, it's just so fun to go back to it. it. Just the sound of it and, you know, what meaning I can derive from it. The language is so, first of all, iconic. That is no country for old men. Yes. That's burned into all of our brains, whether we've read this poem or not. Mm. Um, but also just these... I mean, obviously, there's so many poetic devices, which we don't need to talk about poetic devices today. But, you know, the alliteration of fish, flesh or fowl, monuments of its own magnificence. Like there's just this musicality to the language that is what I love in all poetry, whether it's old or new. Um, it's so satisfying and I'm curious, Joe, if I could ask you a question. How was it to come back to this poem after you haven't read it for, did you say 10 years? At least 10 years. Yeah, well, what was that like? Well, I tell you what, I used to read this poem and I'd be like, God, all Yates talks about is being an old man. And now that I'm now that I'm 64, I'm like, okay, maybe I'm a little bit, a little bit more into this. Uh, it was it was fun getting back into it because when I read it, I originally read it. I was in college, and um, there's a certain tone you take when you talk about poetry when you're in college and things. And yes. you know that's fine, but I've moved away from that in my reading of poetry now. And I was just letting the sound and uh, the ideas just flow over me instead of trying to parse them and think that I have to write a paper on it or something like that. And so I, uh, I would look at lines that, like you, you said, that is no country for old men. I would let that line just sit with me for a while. And and then the one that really sat with me is, uh, it knows not what it is. A dying animal, it knows not what it is. And mm -hmm. the whole idea of knowledge and knowledge being put upon itself and the opposition between eternity and unchanging immortality and the the temporal that we're in these these plays off of each other just resonate with me and I love just to sit with just little snippets of it oh, I I got butterflies hearing some of these lines that just feel like they they just transcend it's so beautiful um I had never read this poem before but some of the lines that stuck out to me Fish, flesh, or fowl, commend all summer long, whatever is begotten, born, and dies. Mm. My God. Loved mortal dress as a line or a concept. Um, this is really musical. Yeah, yeah. Very, very musical. And, you know, that's one of the things that drew me to poetry in the beginning. And uh, then Yeats's whole mystical setup that he developed throughout his poetic career was something that I was very interested in years ago. And, uh, you know, it's, it's just poetry that's very thought out. And as Claire said earlier, if you want to go into this, this is a very highly structured poem. 
and uh, it's very much as the word appears at the end of the third stanza it's a piece of artifice and you know it works in so many different levels of uh, creativity and art and what art is and things like that and you know that's important to me yeah artifice of eternity is a great phrase and it definitely speaks to this the way i perceive this poem anyway which is metrical to the syllable and on a rhyme scheme so we've got like a really formal container but what's in the container is so surprising and so inventive and magical and there's so much depth of mortality and all the best things about poetry yeah, I don't know. People don't write this kind of formal poetry for the most part anymore. And and maybe that's our loss because it's it's a feat. I really enjoyed going back to it. And uh, I was very excited to share it with you today. So what does Byzantium represent? Byzantium is, you know, in my eyes, it's it's the city of the imagination, the city of creativity the city of not the everyday. It's where things are taken beyond the, you know, the mere copulation that's talked about with uh, the salmon and the mackerel and stuff like that in the first stanza. And, uh, you know, he's not happy with that. He's not happy with the fact that he's getting old and that his soul doesn't know how to sing. And there's no singing school. And so he's going to Byzantium to learn how mm -hmm. and it's his it's his vision you know i keep thinking of uh, you know what it reminds me of is the uh the coleridge poem kubla khan in xanadu did kubla khan a stately pleasure dome decree you know and i see you know i see the domes i see you know byzantium is it's not only a, a historical city that's on the edge of the eastern and western civilization but it's a, a a very mystical city in a lot of poetic works. Cool. So it's a place you go in your imagination. You don't go in real life. Yeah. Okay. That makes sense. Thank you. Sorry for asking a dumb question. But oh, not a dumb question. Though. I felt like I wanted to get to the bottom of it, but didn't have enough time. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Read the other poem. Read Byzantium too. It's, it's later poem. It deals with the same subject, but it's much more abstract. The narrative is much more mm. sparse and yeah. it's just language. Uh, it's, I think, a more difficult high modernist poem. Whereas this has a narrative of I traveled to Byzantium. I did this, I did this, this happened. That one, it's just like, Mm. <laughs> it's, it's, but it's gorgeous it's gorgeous but i wouldn't have known what to say about it at all yeah i'm noticing there's some in this book there's some poem titles that remind me of tarot cards and i wonder that's probably intentional yes yeah very much he was very much into the tarot and the golden dawn that's right and, uh, i love it wow thank you joe you're welcome thank you joe you're welcome. i enjoyed sharing that with you I'm gonna guys. get into some Yates later guys I could feel it coming on yeah, yeah wow yeah I'm embarrassed to say that like I I don't know if I ever dug into Yates before 
you know, I went to school and we did, you know, Robert Frost and um, the curriculum in high school was not very poetry heavy. And when it was, it was everything we all know. And then I moved to Austin and was a lover of poetry and kind of pulled what I could find from mm -hmm. the shelves at Book People. And, and then when Malvern opened up, which is a gift to the poets of Austin, I was like, I'm going to read contemporary. I'm going to read women writers, um, people who have Instagrams, people who I can tweet at, um, and kind of like the poetry of the past just never, I never actually sought it out. So this is a gift to know that, that I, I guess I do like Yeats. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, there's some... Um... Yet no one's poetry education, quote unquote, is mm -hmm. complete. And even having done an MFA, it's like there's never a, a way in which you encounter poetry in a historical sense that feels well-rounded by any right, means. Right. I think you have mm -hmm. to do it on your own time. And it's a lot. So mm -hmm. I never really read Yeats either. Yeah. I think, too, it was like, well, what do I have in common with, you know, a dead man that was white and, you know, maybe a lot more than I thought. He was very concerned with what art is and how it relates to life and what living means and what artifice is and, mm -hmm. you know, what you sacrifice to become an artist. It's really beautiful. Thank you for this gift. I'm excited to hear you both talk about the musicality of poetry you know, you read so much poetry that sometimes it's it all starts to sound the same. The energy starts to drain you. And I've been desperate for poetry and language that energizes me, that gives me hope and excitement and makes me want to jump up and down and that just like gets stuck in my head. Right. Um, right. And I recently, if you listened to the final episode of last season, this name will sound familiar to you because Joe received the new edition of Echo Tree by Henry Dumas. And I stumbled upon Flood Edition's Henry Dumas collection of poetry titled Knees of a Natural Man. Mm -hmm. And I've just found so much joy and comfort and excitement and energy in reading his work. Um, musical <laughs> is the first word that comes to mind. Um yeah, I believe there's some actual lyrics in this. Very singable, just really gorgeous, really rich, diverse collection of poetry. Um, sorry, Claire. No, I was just going to say I love singable as um, a descriptor of, you know, a quality of a particular poem. Right. Singable is awesome. Oh, I love it. Yeah. Well, whenever you're ready, I would love to read this poem to you. Oh, yes, please. I'm ready. Black Star Line My black mothers, I hear them singing. Sons, my sons, dip into this river with your ebony cups. A vessel of knowledge sails under power. Steady stars as well as currents. Dip into this river with your ebony cups. My black fathers, I hear them chanting. Sons, my sons, let ebony strike the blow that launches the ship. Send cargoes and warriors back to sea. Remember the pirates and their chains of nails. 
Let ebony strike the blow that launches the ship. Make your heads, not idle sails, blown about by an icy wind like a torn page from a book. Bones of my bones, all of you golden black children of the sun, lift up and read the sky, written in the tongue of your ancestors. It is yours, claim it. Make no idle sails, my sons. Make heavy bone ships that break a wave and pass it. Bring back sagas from Songhai, Congo, Kaba, deeds and words of Malik, Toussaint, Marcus, statues of Madhi, and a lance of lightning. Make no idle ships. Remember the pirates, for it is the sea who owns the pirates, not the pirates the sea. My black mothers, I hear them singing. Children of my flesh, dip into this river with your ebony cups. A ship of knowledge sails unto wisdom. Study what mars and what lifts up. Dip into this river with your ebony cups. Well done. What a poem. It's just so beautiful and full of hope, full of change, action. Um, I love seeing on the page kind of like stage direction almost. There's just so much, so much there. Mm. Oh, yeah. Yeah, I mean, it's the language and the lyrics and the rhythm. That's what makes it poetry, besides mm-hmm. the succinctness that we were talking about at the beginning. It's very urgent. Mm-hmm. And, you know, it the tone almost sounds biblical to me. Sons, yes. my sons, perhaps, kicks that off. But this sort of reaching out after power and knowledge and wisdom, like those, those are also sort of those massive poetry words that are also massive biblical words um and then there's these little almost puzzles like Mm -hmm. remember the pirates for it is the sea who owns the pirates not the pirates the sea and you know you're supposed to glean some little kernel of wisdom from that but it's so strange (laughs) that it just feels like a little puzzle study the stars as well as currents dip into this river with your ebony cups it's, it's wow. evocative. It. It's the poem is telling the reader to do something and to be active. There are images in the poem, but this is this is a a poem telling the reader to go out and do something or to think about something in certain ways, maybe new ways, and and to remember and to think of the future and the past and just not let things stay in stasis you know it's look here look there you know there's more than one place and then investigate yourself and that's just the very beginning it was so hard to choose a poem because they're all so great um and some of them are very difficult and and there's so much variation but i just i just loved that this was kind of a call yes. it's like Let's get up. Let's shoot out of our seats and and make things move and and learn. It really reminds me of one of the short stories in Echo Tree titled Ark of Bones. Mm-hmm. It really reminds me of that story. And I'm mm-hmm. just now realizing that kind of what that story boils down to and what maybe you could say this poem is doing as well is like, there's this forward movement, but there's also this deep reaching back towards the ancestral line and kind of reconnecting 
this diaspora of black souls to their ancestral line and um making them whole again mm. if that makes sense like dipping the cup into the river is just such a symbolic image he loved water as as a symbolic image i i noticed that a lot in the stories mm. as well oh there's this one poem in here it ends with these two lines i was missed now i am water and that was from a poem titled Mississippi Song. I just looked at the back of the book and there's the word zeal in Gwendolyn Brooks' blurb. That's a great word for Henry Dumas's poetry mm -hmm. and also kind mm -hmm. of that quality, that Holy Spirit quality we keep trying to define oh, yeah. today is zeal is definitely the word. Also kind of biblical. Mm. Man, I am so, so excited about Henry Dumas right now. I'm so glad you brought this poem in arm because... Echo Tree is just blowing the top of my head off right now, and I can't wait yeah. to dive into this book, too. Well, I'm happy to hear it. Um, yeah, I, I've been in a big jazz kick, and I just, I love that energy, and I'm desperate to find it everywhere I can. Yes. Claire, what are you bringing us to read today? So I decided to go with something brand new to me. I'm just reading her for the first time, and this is her first book. She's a very young poet, so her name is Zaina Alsus. The book is called A Theory of Birds. It won the Atel Adnan Poetry Series Prize through the University of Arkansas Press. There's a lot to unpack in this poem, so I'm just going to start off by reading it, and we'll go from there. Reading Darwish in Vermont Though to the quarry I seem foreign, everything dying is relative, or dialectically elegant as marble in acid rain. Where one sees evidence of erosion, others see God's revenge. Every window is a writer of fiction, plotting us an outside, a thread of moonlight, coniferous precedent for a future tense. Meriwether Lewis also shed tears at a bluff's lips, yellow, lining the source. At the scene's edge, the people who were here before before, a flicker of ghosts, or translators, or birds in his Euclidean notes. I am trying to understand how theft becomes marvelous. If language can hybrida, Anemone, never be enough to repair, begin again. I imagine the sculpture assemble me into slab, an effigy of clay. The birds watch me through distant glass, whistling a mnemonic flute, assigned in a field guide. I trace muses from a balcony, pretending to doula flocks of wet green while the women who share my face sleep under Shatilla's wire canopies. There is so much at stake in a landless archive that sometimes, intoxicated with the fantasy of cruelty, I build settlements in stained bedrooms without warning. Though I have mastered mimesis, a white mistress emanating gardenias, I mourn myself by disappearing without prompt. 
Could you understand love as a wooded absence? The azaleas photograph the grove of me, a gaze of organs trembling in the breeze. What is place? Oh, how badly my language shows American, densely haunted and subtitled. I have not called my mother in weeks, though her kitchen is my only country, a crowded exile, we catacomb in lost scent. I, parallax of I, only fluent in spectator, continue to pray facing the graves and the grease. Wow. Ooh. It's a hell of a poem. There is a lot in there. Anar, you know this about me. <laughs> Something I love in poetry is a poem that is several steps ahead of me intellectually that is sort of pulling me along in an intellectual way that is is challenging but also is sort of giving me the breadcrumbs to kind of make connections and, and form a new understanding that I did not have before I read the poem. Mm. And then that's also the kind of poem I feel like I can read so many times and always come away with something new. Mm -hmm. So I recognize this is a challenging poem and there were lots of things I had to Google and, and look into just to be perfectly honest. <laughs> um, but yes, each time I return to this poem, I feel enlightened. And that's something I really love about it. Mm. I will say the other thing that really made a strong personal connection to me is this idea that I'm pulling from the first page. When she says, every window is a writer of fiction, plotting us an outside, there's to me, there's also a window opening inside into poetry. And it's almost like fiction is out there. Poetry is in here. And poetry is so, so deep in here. It's the most internal thing. And in the face of all of these difficult ideas or facts or realities, like the Shatila's wire canopies, is, it's a camp, right, in Palestine. And so she's imagining people who are essentially incarcerated in that camp. Um, women who share her face, right? There's these really hard realities and even her language showing American, she's a Palestinian American. So she's like recognizing her own place in the diaspora. Um, it's still just this deeply personal, deeply emotional, intellectual, all of these things rolled into one. Yeah, it's the internal that I love in this as she kind of reflects on on the external world and all of its complications. Right. Man, there's so much to say. Uh, I'll say one more thing. Sorry. <laughs> the other thing that, that just hooked me in, it's so small, but if language can hybrid a anemone, never be enough. Like that's the kind of little poetic move that makes me kind of gasp where it's just like, if language can hybrid a anemone, it's like the poet's breaking down almost. Like I can't even make uh, the sentence complete itself because... This idea is so far beyond me and I'm grappling with something that is so unknown, which of course is language. And I love that. And I love how it connects to never be enough to repair or begin again. So it's as much about poetry as it is about her personal reality. I, I think it, uh, it's very you to bring such a, a dense and rich and decadent 
poem right, for right. today. Um, I remember, was this a poet that Monica had recommended that we read? Oh, yeah. Yeah, that's, that's and right. And now I'm, I'm kicking myself. I need to read more. As a spooky person, you know that I loved um, At the Scene's Edge, the people who were here before, before a flicker of ghosts or translators or birds in his Euclidean notes. I am trying to understand how theft becomes marvelous. Oh, my God. And it's so cool because you feel kind of unmoored, I think, in this poem, like just... <laughs> you're floating out at sea sometimes in the language of like, oh no, I'm my intellect is starting to not be able to put this together. But really, when you look back, she's given us like all the breadcrumbs we need. So Meriwether Lewis is shedding tears at the bluff. She's almost empathizing with a notorious colonizer, mm. <laughs> you know? Yeah. Um, imagining him shedding tears at the bluffs, looking at those American Midwestern bluffs. At the scene's edge, the people who were here before, before those flicker of ghosts are the indigenous people. Mm. So there is a statement being made there, even though it's so mystical and, and yeah, spooky. I love that word. The birds in his Euclidean notes at the scene's edge, the people who were here before, before. That's very, that's very much right. Because wasn't Meriwether Lewis also Lewis and Clark? Yes. Uh, yeah. So, I mean, he's taking notes all the way across the country as Western expansion is going. And uh, I'm trying to understand how theft becomes marvelous. Because that's what Lewis and Clark are looked at as, is a marvelous adventure. Yeah. And if you're looking at it from her perspective or from our perspective, they're also thieves. <laughs> yes, exactly. Exactly. And they paved the way. They made it possible for all yeah. of us to be here now, which is crazy. I mean, yeah, the historical levels to this are so deep and yet it's so personal. Mm-hmm. I just felt really struck when I read this the first time. And I just kept going back and reading it again and again. But then talking about the colonization and things like that, the towards the end where she says, I have not called my mother in weeks, though her kitchen is my only country. That's like all yes. of a sudden we've left all that behind and we've become eminently personal. Mm-hmm. A crowded exile. We catacomb in lost scent. Mm. I'd love to sit around and unpack these last lines. I, parallax of I, only fluent and spectator, continue to pray, facing the graves and the grease. The grease in Mama's kitchen. Yeah, the grease was so shocking. I, I was, like, kind of mad at it when I, when I first read it. I was like, <sighs> ah, how is that the last word of this poem? But you're right. It's connected back to the kitchen. Yeah. 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 It's just... It's so much. It's so much. And then, you know, we have to go back and, you know, we have to read our Darwish. And... Well, and that is someone I haven't read and I know of. Right. And so it was kind of inspirational in that way for yeah. me, too. Yeah, I love this. I should read that. <laughs> yeah, this is one of these great poems that's a window into more poetry. Yeah. I mean, this is her first book, you guys. She holds so much at once. Mm. 
she really packs it all in to the poem. Mm. And I, I love that. I love maximalism. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> this is right up my alley. So I'm excited to see what else she publishes. It's maximalism, but I don't feel like I'm having to slog through anything. I feel like the language is being very friendly mm -hmm. to me. It gives you everything you need to at least form some kind of resonance between the lines. But yeah, I feel like it's also very generous in that way. Thank you all for bearing with me on my <laughs> intense poetry yeah. pick. But you know, I love intense poetry. So good. Well, thank you for bringing this. Uh, I think we've talked about three very different poems today. And yeah. uh, it's been so much fun. And uh, it makes me want to go read some poetry. Yeah. Yeah. That's the whole point of this. That's the whole point of Poetry Month. Read poetry. Because, you know, one of my favorite things is when W.H. Auden says, poetry makes nothing happen. And that's always taken as, you know, it's not active. It just sits there and stuff like that. Sometimes nothing is exactly what needs to happen. <laughs> yeah. And you need to slow down. You need to stop. You need to reflect on what this word means, what this line means. Why choose that word? Why choose the word coniferous? Why choose the word cups or river? What's the image of the river? And you need to slow down and think and just be. And poetry makes you do that. It's very powerful in that way. That's so true, Joe. It's such a meditative practice to really sit with poetry and take your time with it and return to the same poem, the same line again and again. Um, I can't imagine my life without it, <laughs> truly. Yeah, yeah, neither can I. Neither can I. I mean, I can't, I can't imagine not reading poetry. It's definitely enriched my life mm -hmm. in a lot of ways. All right, y'all. It was fun talking with you. It was. Yes. Always good seeing y'all.